You're listening to Environmentally Speaking, a weekly podcast diving into legal matters surrounding the environment, public utilities, energy, zoning, and permitting laws in Rhode Island and the surrounding areas with your host, Marissa Desitel. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Welcome to Environmentally Speaking. This is Marissa Desitel. I am an environmental lawyer with a few decades of experience. Hi, guys. It's Clarice here. I am here to bring you your questions, comments, and topics to talk about. And we do not have a listener request today. This one is coming from me. We recently had a lot of people calling in asking about building on wetlands, owning wetland property, and it's more than just, I own this piece of property that just so happens to be damp sometimes, and I'd still like to build a house. There's a lot involved. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Okay. Specifically, yeah. Um, And firstly, to start, everyone should know that there are two types of wetlands in terms of jurisdiction in Rhode Island. There are coastal wetlands, and then there are freshwater wetlands. If you're dealing with freshwater wetlands, it's the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management that regulates them. And if you're talking about coastal wetlands, it's the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council that handles those. So for purposes of our conversation today, I'm going to talk about freshwater wetlands because in my experience, they're more common. And to start, everyone should also know that the state law that regulates freshwater wetlands is called the Freshwater Wetlands Act. It talks about how the public policy of the state is to preserve the purity and integrity of freshwater wetlands, buffers, and floodplains. So three different categories of of preservation listed in state law. Oh, and we've had a lot of people call and ask about buffers specifically. Um, To narrow in, a lot of people are talking about or asking us, what is a buffer? How big of a buffer do they need? So let's start with what's a buffer? What does that look like? Um, A buffer generally, I'm just looking up the uh, statutory definition here as we're talking, so I can read that to you. But um, the buffer is an area of undeveloped vegetated land adjacent to a freshwater wetland that has to be maintained and retained in its natural condition um, or is to be created to resemble a naturally occurring vegetated area. So that's a that's kind of a, a paraphrasing of what the definition is in state law. But for a layperson, a buffer is a setback. It's land adjacent to the edge of the wetland itself that cannot be altered. It has to remain in its natural condition. And the reason that that's so important is buffers provide habitat, travel corridor, nesting, feeding, foraging grounds for various species that live in those areas. And without the buffer area, you are then impacting the entire ecosystem, but you're impacting immediately the bugs, bunnies, birds, critters that live in, on, or adjacent to a freshwater wetland. 
So I've always had in my head this vision that a buffer is kind of like a natural wall. And in reviewing past DEM documents, I saw a lot of times DEM suggesting things that would be a buffer. And it was like different types of shrubs, of bushes, of plants to put in that area that seemed to be native. Is that common for DEM to have specifications of what should be included in a buffer? Well, I think what you're talking about is the order section of something called a notice of violation that DEM issues to someone when they have evidence and grounds to believe that someone has altered a buffer without approval first from DEM. So we can talk about notices of violation, but I think but the other part of your previous episode. <laughs> yeah. But the other part of your question had to do, I think, with certain types of setbacks and certain types of buffers that comes from state law and DEM regulation for freshwater wetlands, where the jurisdictional area that is subject to DEM regulation depends on the type of freshwater wetlands that you're talking about. So for example, if you own property where there is a river or a stream, the jurisdictional area is 200 feet from the edge of that river or stream. And depending, again, depending on which type of wetlands you're talking about, there's a different jurisdictional area, the setback from the edge of the the wetland itself. The buffer is also considered a jurisdictional area, but that's the, the, the section that we talked about that needs to remain in its natural vegetated state. If someone goes in and removes the natural vegetation by clearing, grading, um, and and filling, then you've altered this buffer area and DEM will order you to restore it. And that's when the type of plants and the type of seed and soil mixture comes into play where DEM will say, here's what you need to plant. Here's, you know, you need to put 25 trees in 10 feet apart, whatever it is. They have the wetlands biologists on staff who are experts at looking at a particular alteration and making a a decision on what you need to do to restore the buffer. And going back to DEM and that overarching group that kind of oversees wetlands and the regulations, there was a recent change to substantive objections or? Yeah. Oh. (laughs) All right. Tell us your feelings on that. Man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wasn't personally happy about the change. Um, but you know, no one asked me the state law that was changed fairly recently. Um, just looking at the, looks like maybe 2015 was the most recent update to the law, but It's Rhode Island General Law 2-1-22 Section B, as in boy, that talks about um, objections to a proposed alteration of a buffer area or alteration of a freshwater wetland itself. Um, 
previously, the previous iteration of this state section of state law that I referenced indicated that if a municipality issued a formal objection, it constituted an automatic denial by the Department of Environmental Management. Currently, the law says something different that if DEM receives something called a substantive objection, then DEM will schedule a public hearing. Why is this important? Well, for those attorneys out there that have municipal clients or folks that live in a, a city or town who appeal to their city council for assistance with objecting to a project, the municipal entity filing a formal objection no longer constitutes an automatic denial. Instead, DEM has this broad discretion to make a determination about whether objections received are of a substantive nature. So you can imagine how ambiguous that might be and um, subjective. Of course, DEM is the expert, but the latitude um, of, of substantive nature objection is a huge departure from what the state law used to say about municipal objections. It sounds like, and maybe I'm mishearing this or misinterpreting this, but it sounds like you're no longer guaranteed to have that matter heard if it's discretionary. That's right. So let's say you, as a property owner, receive notice that your neighbor is looking to alter um, a, a pond mm -hmm. that you share access to by cutting down a bunch of naturally protective vegetation and uh, putting a, maybe putting a dock in or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And you write in and say, hey, look, I have an objection. I'm an owner of, to the adjacent, of the adjacent property and um, the area is subject to erosion and, and stormwater flowage. And I would prefer that the applicant not cut down the vegetation or, you know, you think that your objection is substantive. Mm -hmm. And DEM receives it and says, no, we think it's okay. Not only do you not necessarily hear back on that opinion, but that's the end of it. You're, you're not necessarily going to have an opportunity for a public hearing. You submit your comments, DEM makes the decision, and the next thing you know, your adjacent neighbor is cutting back vegetation. So it's, um, again, not to, not to speak poorly of DEM, they're the experts, they know what they're doing, but it is a huge departure in process and, and due process from the resident's perspective and, a, and the municipality's perspective. I can definitely see how it leaves objectors and oftentimes neighbors in a sticky situation now. Yeah. Yeah, it can be frustrating. Is there anything else that we should talk about with wetlands? I mean, there's so much to talk about with wetlands. I feel like we should probably do another podcast on it. Oh, we could have a part two. That's exciting. Uh, exciting. Yeah, we've never had a part two. Part two feels like a legacy thing in podcasts. Okay, great. At least, I don't know. I think so. I'll defer to you. you you're better <laughs> than I am. 
<laughs> as the binge listener of podcasts, part twos are always intriguing. That's right. Unless our listeners write in and say, please, dear Lord, please stop that stop. one. Stop the wetlands. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the dryland. You did better there. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, on that note, um, if you hate us talking about wetlands, let us know. Let us know if you want to hear us talk more about wetlands and anything else going on. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmentally Speaking. If you're in need of an environmental attorney, we are here to help. Call us at 401-477-0023 or visit our website at www.desatellaw.com. That's www.desatellaw.com.